Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. My name is Rosa Beyer, and I direct the, the Brown University Center for Long-Term Care Quality and Innovation, which we call QI, and which is the administrative home for the IMPACT Collaboratory. Like IMPACT, QI focuses on pragmatic research, and today I'm pleased to be speaking with Dr. Jim Rudolph and Dr. Betsy White, both of whom are affiliated with the Brown Center for Gerontology and Healthcare Research. I've been fortunate to work closely with both of you on various studies, and I listened with great interest last week during your talks. Unfortunately, our Q&A then was cut short due to a glitch with Zoom, so we're now reconvening to ask some audience questions. Uh, Dr. Rudolph and Dr. White, could you please start by reintroducing yourself? I'm Jim Rudolph. I'm a geriatrician and palliative care physician. I'm based at the Providence VA Medical Center as well as Brown University. And my name is Elizabeth White, I, or Betsy White, and I am a geriatric nurse practitioner. My background is in long-term care, and I am currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Center for Gerontology and Healthcare Research at Brown in the School of Public Health. Thank you. You both described projects that leverage data to understand how COVID manifests in older adults. Briefly, what is the one key finding from your research that you'd like the audience to walk away with? From my research, uh, I think it's something we've known for a long time, which is each individual older adult is an individual. And so each one will manifest this disease in a, in a unique way. While there are common elements of COVID-19 in the older population, uh, particularly as we get to the, the frailer nursing home population, there's a unique constellation of symptoms that develop. Yeah, and I, I would just piggyback on that. Um, I mean, I know always in my training, I was always taught that older adults don't read the textbook. They tend to present in uh, nonspecific and atypical ways. And, um, you know, we're, start, we're finding that as well as we're looking at how uh, individuals with COVID, particularly nursing home individuals, are, are presenting. Um, they, you know, there are certain symptoms that are more common, low-grade fever, hypoxia, uh, cough, but we also see a lot of atypical symptoms such as, um, you know, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So it's a very, um, it, it's a very challenging population to, um, you know, categorize and, and classify uh, symptoms in. Both of you are clinician researchers who are in active practice. Uh, Dr. Rudolph, you mentioned you're a geriatrician, you're in the VA health system. Dr. White, you're a nurse practitioner with experience in community nursing homes, among other settings. I'm going to start with you, Dr. White. Can you tell us how vitals and other changes in condition are typically tracked in nursing homes? So in nursing homes, usually um, in your typical long-stay population, people who are um, you know, in the nursing home because they need assistance with, with daily activities, uh, usually vital signs are monitored uh, you know, about once a month or as needed. So if the, per if the person is um, feeling ill, if there's a change in condition, then obviously they will monitor them more frequently. But on a regular basis, it's generally about once a month. Um, individuals that are in the nursing home for post-acute care uh, who are a little... Um, you know, sicker, a little, have a little more things going on, their, their vital signs are usually monitored on at least a daily basis. 
So it's a it's a fan, fascinating study and in, in finding that relatively few uh, nursing home residents meet the CDC's fever threshold of 38.0 degrees Celsius. Uh, with that said, I think we need to begin to recognize the uniqueness of the population and, and use the resident's own baseline as the, as the base point from which we then calculate a change in that baseline. So if a, if a resident runs at 36.5, the threshold for that, that resident may be 37.0 or 37.5. Uh, it, it, I think it's going to vary a little uh, based on the residents, uh, but in general, I think we need to think about using uh, the, the resident's baseline. And we're finally at a point where electronic medical record infrastructure has uh, evolved to the point where we can calculate what that baseline is using some of those monthly measurements that, that Betsy talked about. Dr. White, you discussed not only common clinical presentations in this population, but also the relative importance of universal testing in facilities with COVID cases and those that are COVID naive. What are the implications for testing policy and protocols? So um, we have a really interesting research collaboration with Genesis Healthcare. Um, so, you know, COVID is a very complex, rapidly evolving problem. There are a lot of um, clinical and operational questions to you know, try to parse out and, um, you know, in order to be able to do that, we need to have real-time clinical data. So we have, between Brown University and Genesis Healthcare, um, uh, we have a very productive research collaboration where they're sharing all their clinical data with us. So we have the advantage of being able to see in close to real time um, the number of cases, the number of deaths, um, as well as all, you know, individual characteristics of residents from their electronic medical record data. So one of, uh, and, and Genesis is also the largest provider post-acute care in the country. Um, they have roughly 350 skilled nursing facilities across 25 states. And they have a large subset of nursing homes that have, been, that have undergone universal testing, otherwise known as a point prevalence survey, where everyone in the facility is tested. So as we've started to look at some of their preliminary data on those buildings that have been universally tested, what we're finding is that about 45% of all the cases that they're identifying are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, meaning that they, at the time of testing, they don't have symptoms, but then they later go on to develop symptoms. And this is very important when you think about uh, dissemination within uh, a nursing home because we know that um, the way that this virus spreads within nursing homes is, is predominantly through asymptomatic and presymptomatic spread. So what we're finding as we um, look at these buildings that have been universally tested is that once the virus is already in the building, so meaning um, when you test a building that already has at least one case, you will almost always will, will find additional cases. And that has very important implications for testing policy because it really shows that once the virus is already in the building, once, once a facility already has a confirmed outbreak, it's absolutely critical to get universal testing into that building rapidly so that uh, the leadership within, a nursing, within that nursing home can identify and cohort cases appropriately. Um, simultaneously, we also were able to look at facilities that had not had any resident cases. Um, so in other words, they were COVID-naive buildings. Um, so they didn't have any known cases, but still about 15% of those buildings identified new cases as a result of universal testing. So you know, it, it, it shows that there's ways that we can, um, 
you know, testing capacity is still very limited or is still limited in many parts of the country. And I think the implications are there are certain buildings that absolutely need to be prioritized. Um, but, you know, testing policy can be adapted to local conditions. Your findings for both projects highlight gaps between the emerging science and the CDC recommendations. Have either of you had communication with government officials surrounding screening recommendations for older adults or targeted use of testing in nursing homes? The VA operates 134 uh, community living centers, which is our, our version of a, a nursing home. And we operate on a unified medical record, and we're, we're incredibly dedicated to uh, the health and well-being of the residents who reside in our community living centers. As we've gone through the COVID crisis, we've demonstrated uh, really aggressive measures uh, to improve infection control in our facilities in response to this crisis. Let me give you an example. Uh, you know, in, in early February, if you said you were going to socially distance a resident in a nursing home, you would have been cited for it on your, on your annual survey or your state inspection uh, because you're, you, we, that's against the culture of what we've done in nursing homes. And in a matter of weeks, we reversed all of that. It isn't popular with our staff. It isn't popular with our residents, but we, we recognize that COVID uh, is such an incredible threat to them that we needed to take these steps to do that. As a government agency, the VA has been in regular communications with CDC and CMS uh, about the uh, challenges of COVID in all populations that we serve. Dr. White, your findings built on prior presentation of data from the Genesis collaboration that included um, some information about the relationship between community prevalence of COVID and the risk of COVID entering facilities. Taken as a whole, how have the results of this ongoing collaboration affected um, our thinking about the risk factors for COVID entering facilities and the policies and procedures that should result? So I think one of the um, most important risk factors that we're finding um, when we look at both the, the likelihood of having any outbreak and then also when we look at the severity of the outbreak, meaning the counts of cases and the counts of deaths within an individual facility, what we're finding is that the largest risk factor for COVID getting into a nursing home is the, that nursing home being in an area of high uh, community prevalence. So if the nursing home is located in a county where there, where COVID is in the county and there's high prevalence in the county, it, it just because of, um, you know, staff, uh, admissions coming in and out of the nursing home, the, there's a significant risk of COVID coming into the nursing home. And additionally, we find that, uh, larger buildings, uh, are also at higher risk just because they tend to, you know, again, they have more, more foot traffic and you have staff coming in and out and unknowingly, not, you know, to any fault of their own, um, introducing the virus into the building. 
Um, we are not finding significant relationships with, uh, with the ways that we typically measure quality in nursing homes historically. So we're not finding uh, consistent relationships between either the five-star rating or, or if, an, if a nursing home had passed um, infection control deficiency citations, that does not seem to be um, correlated with either the probability of an outbreak or the severity of the outbreak. And that has important implications for policy. Because, you know, others have spoken about this quite eloquently, but if you think that the problem is a a quality issue where you have poor quality facilities or the ones that that get COVID, then you invest your resources in enforcement and surveys and fines and deficiencies. Um, But what we're really finding is that, you know, this is a system-wide problem. And nursing homes that are in high prevalent areas are, the, are, are at high risk for getting it. And because of that, you know, these nursing homes, they need resources. And so the nursing homes that are at high, highest risk for getting it, they need, you know, federal and state help to support their staffing, to get adequate PPE, um, get adequate testing capacity. You know, this is really, it, it's a system-wide problem and there needs to be federal and state support to uh, bring resources to these buildings rather than diverting uh, resources solely into surveys and enforcement. And focusing on some of the big picture implications in terms of policy, um, ap- you know, application of testing and, and other policies at the high level. Some of our audience questions were also um, focused on what the nursing home providers can do within their facilities. So for example, um, is there additional or emerging evidence on other atypical presentations among older adults? Uh, Do we have information on the prevalence of decreased appetite, altered taste and smell, altered mental status? Um, Some of these findings might have practical implications for those who are in direct contact with residents and can be monitoring them for emerging signs of infection. Do you have any thoughts um, based on your ongoing research? So we did, um, we are looking at different symptom presentations and we are finding a fairly high prevalence of these atypical symptoms. Um, so it, the data that I presented during the, um, the grand rounds, about 16% of nursing home residents are presenting initially with GI symptoms, so nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. About another 16%, I think it was, um, are presenting with just nonspecific malaise. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the constellation of symptoms that we're finding to have the highest predictive value are cough, fever, and hypoxia. Um, but, uh, a lot of these, these nursing home residents are are presenting atypically, so it, it can be challenging to, you know, who you have to have a higher index of suspicion for. We're finding that people that are presenting with like your run-of-the-mill cold symptoms, runny nose, sore throat, nasal congestion, those are much less likely to be associated with COVID. So those individuals you can probably have a lower index of suspicion for, um, but still there's just a lot of atypical presentation in this population. Dr. Rudolph, I know that you're part of other research efforts focused on coronavirus in the community living centers. Do any of the other efforts that you're involved with touch on these atypical presentations and the use of technology, uh, for example, as you've done with uh, temperature monitoring? So I think there's there's some really unique things going on with with temperature monitoring. You know, in an electronic system, 
you're able to manipulate that data to display it in new ways. Again, we're for the first time measuring temperature daily in nursing home residents, and, and that provides some opportunities. Uh, that A system that can display it in a way that presents it to people so that it becomes an infection control backbone, uh, and, and not just in the temperature domain, but in, as Dr. Dr. White mentioned, uh, looking at uh, oximetry and looking at pulse rates and other symptoms uh, can really hone in on that population. Uh, the other part is uh, thinking about this from a systems level and infection control is your most important uh, weapon in the, in the fight against COVID. And so, uh, early recognition of those atypical symptoms as well as the typical symptoms and uh, cohorting or infection control practices around those, uh, around those residents will, will help mitigate the spread of the disease throughout the facility and even amongst a neighborhood or ward. So I think there's, there's real opportunity to use data in a pragmatic way uh, part of it is manipulation of that data. Part of it is presentation of that data. And then ultimately use of that data to alter the clinical care that we deliver. One of the challenging questions that we received from the audience is how providers can use these findings, these results, uh, to begin to think about um, balancing individuals' risk against the need for socialization. And specifically, someone asked about reopening communal dining. Do you have any thoughts um, based on your findings and how clinicians can incorporate them into practice to both prevent infection, but also enable residents to enjoy daily activities? COVID has presented us with some really unique challenges, clinicians. And we're, we're just in the beginning phases of this as we anticipate not only a second wave, but potentially a third wave uh, continuing throughout the winter season, uh, commingled with the flu season as well. So there's going to be a real opportunity to use our training as clinicians to really understand the not only the presentation of this, but how to manage this disease going forward. Um, and so I think we, we have to um, remember that this is a long-term uh, challenge that we're facing and not let our, our desire for short-term gains um, influence those decisions. So I think that I would opt for more rigorous infection control um, with a goal of preventing the spread of COVID throughout a facility. As some of Dr. White's point prevalence data uh, identified, once COVID is in a facility, it can, it's more likely that other residents in that facility will develop COVID. So while we hope to keep it out, um, once we do have it within a facility, containing it within that facility becomes really important for the health and safety of other residents. So uh, I think there's a huge opportunity here to um, use, our, use our clinical skills to identify some of those uh, unique symptoms uh, to use the testing data we have available to, and, and the infection control practices that we practice so much to really help keep a, keep a hold on this uh, during the, the entire duration of this pandemic. Just to build off of Dr. Rudolph's point there, um, you know, testing capacity is absolutely going to have to improve in these nursing homes in order to open them up and to bring uh, be able to bring visitors in safely. 
And we're going to need the data to be able to do that strategically. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, COVID is something that's going to be with us for the long term. Uh, it's going to be with us for um, many months. And, you know, it's something that we're, we're going to have to adapt to. And, and like Dr. Rudolph said, we're going to need to have rigorous infection control procedures. And we're also going to have to have the ability to test residents and staff on a regular basis and to prioritize testing uh, in facilities uh, that have cases and in facilities that have outbreaks. It may be that, um, you know, you can isolate, you know, even within a building, uh, isolation and cohorting may, may vary. Um, but there's going to, testing capacity is absolutely going to have to be uh, improved in order to start opening up uh, nursing homes. So far we've focused on the implications of your findings for policy and practice, but you both spoke as part of a panel on pragmatic research in nursing homes during the pandemic. And the impact collaboratory as a whole focuses on creating a pipeline for and increased knowledge around embedded pragmatic clinical trials. Let's talk a little about your studies from the perspective of pragmatic research. Dr. White, in IMPACT, there's a big focus on learning health systems and how such systems engage with researchers. In your talk, you described collaboration between Brown and Genesis Healthcare, a multi-state nursing home corporation. How and why did Brown and Genesis form this partnership, and are there key aspects to making it mutually beneficial? Yeah, so this was, um, this is a collaboration to, um, you know, as I mentioned before, COVID is a very large, complex, and rapidly evolving problem in nursing homes. And there are many clinical, operational, and epidemiological questions that we need to answer. We need to be able to do that very quickly to help inform our policies and our practices to keep staff and residents safe. So, you know, in order to do that, you need the data. And typically when we study nursing homes, we tend to use um, data sources like Medicare claims or other administrative data. And there's a significant lag time with those, um, with those data sources. So the real advantage of being able to partner with, with Genesis is that we're able to look at their clinical data in almost real time. Um, so the data that we're looking at today is you know, from the last week. And that there's very, you know, there's significant value in that. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we don't have good public data right now on the impact of COVID in nursing homes. You know, since the pandemic began, individual states have been collecting data, but not all the states have been reporting that data publicly. The states that are reporting do it in different ways. They report different levels or amounts of data, or they report it in different formats. So it's very hard to compare across states. Uh, just recently, the National Health and Safety Network uh, released the first uh, national data, but there, you know, there's only about 80% of facilities are available in uh, that data, and, the, and there's still a lot of errors in that data. It's going to take several weeks before um, that becomes more usable. So we have this real advantage in the interim working with Genesis, which again is across 25 states. They have about 350 nursing homes um, that we have the level of data and detail where we can start to understand, uh, for example, you know, risk factors for mortality uh, within this patient population. You know, that, that data otherwise is just not there. Um, so we you know, have a weekly meeting with, with the Genesis team and we're just constantly sharing back and forth what we're finding, they're helping us to interpret their data, and it's been a very productive, um, important collab collaboration. 
And my understanding is that uh, the Genesis Healthcare team actually approached the Center for, for Gerontology and Healthcare Research about establishing this collaboration in part because of the expertise that you and your team have using those big data that you described. Yes, and, and, and they are fully vested in this, and I mean, because they want to be able to answer these questions as well. Dr. Rudolph, your perspective is a little different since you're a geriatrician who practices in the VA system and your research centers on VA uh, nursing homes, community living centers. How did being part of the health system inform how you identified and approached this study? Being part of a healthcare system in a global pandemic has major advantages. First, our community living centers are tied to our hospital system on the same electronic medical record. And we use it across all uh, 150 medical centers within the VA. So having that type of technological infrastructure really allows information to flow smoothly. Next, we have access to experts in, in infectious disease and in, uh, in pandemic control and all sorts of uh, specialties where if we were an individual uh, nursing facility in the community, we may not have that access to expertise. Uh, the other th uh, major part is that we have a supply chain that helps stock our facilities with supplies of all types. That includes PPE. So we have a, a, um, a stable supply of PPE. While our, while our burn rate for the PPE has gone up during, during COVID, um, we've always had access to PPE. Uh, the other part is that the laboratory testing issues. Well, an individual nursing center may not have a laboratory on site. Most of our VA medical centers have a testing laboratory for COVID on site. And that allows us to prioritize our testing and make sure that the testing gets done on the residents and the staff who need to be tested. This is my last question. What is one thing that you want today's audience to walk away with, whether it's knowledge and action people can take or something else? My one thing would be don't wait for uh, certain criteria before you implement rigorous infection control. Uh, we need to recognize that the older population is unique, that we as clinicians understand uh, that small changes in behavior or atypical symptoms, as Dr. White was talking about, really may represent the manifestation of this disease. And so uh, because the disease is so, so deadly in our, our frail older population, uh, we need to take action earlier rather than later. And so use your clinical instincts. Don't wait for threshold of criteria before taking that action. And I think my key point would just be to um, not underestimate the importance of asymptomatic spread in this population. And just to reiterate that nursing homes need resources right now. They need state and federal help um, to support PBE, to support uh, staffing, and to support testing capacity, just given that we know that so many of the cases are asymptomatic or presymptomatic. Um, and we just know that this can spread very quickly through a nursing home uh, in that way. Thank you both so much for taking the time to reconvene today to discuss your research. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.